Welcome to the Drivable Podcast, where we discuss all things about driving and safer community transport for people with disabilities and medical conditions. If you haven't done so yet, make sure you subscribe to our channels and follow us on our socials. Drive Able Podcast, just search for it, you'll find it. We have heaps of content and interviews. Go back and listen to some of our old uh, episodes. There's so much gold. Um, we get lots of great feedback from the industry, so get onto it and um, check it out, Brad. Yeah, g'day, Ali. Yeah, in this episode, we're not going to talk about modifications to a vehicle, which is something a little bit different for us. In this episode, we're talking to a client with autism and with a diagnosed anxiety. Um, and Bruno's uh, the man that's coming on, and he's just graduated to get his probationary license. So he's just got onto his P's. Uh, and we're talking to him about the process that he's gone through and we're going to unpack the, how autism and anxiety is impact on the learning processes. So I can't wait. Let's get into it. What do you reckon? Let's do it, Brad. Driving is something many take for granted. But when someone has altered ability, then driving or getting out and about in your own car can be challenging. Driving with a disability doesn't mean you have to drive an old clapped out car with farm-like machinery and relying on a wheelchair doesn't mean waiting for hours and then being in the back of a maxi access cab getting car sick. The Drivable podcast is designed to introduce and explore driving aids for people with disabilities, vehicle modifications, the NDIS, research, medical guidelines, driving techniques and much, much more. The Drivable Podcast is to help you be informed and be in control of your own independence so you can experience freedom through driving safely and reliably. I'm Ali and with me is Brad and together we have over 30 years of experience in disability and driving. Enough of the intros, let's get into it. Okay, everybody, in this episode, we are talking to Bruno. Bruno, thanks very much for joining us. Really excited to uh, chat with you. The question we ask everybody to start off with is, could you please introduce yourself and let us know a little bit about your disability? Yeah, sure. So my full name is Bruno Palamara. I'm 25 years of age. Um, my list of disabilities include, well, before I get into that, let me first start with my journey and how um, I got diagnosed with my conditions. So um, at the age of two, um, I got diagnosed with semantic pragmatic disorder. So I'm not sure if, um, if it's really well known nowadays, but back when I was born, I was around two years old when I was diagnosed. Um, People that usually people that had autism, because autism wasn't very well known then, they would um, just say, especially if it was high functioning autism, which is what I had, they, the doctors would just kind of say, uh, it's probably just semantic pragmatic disorder, which is, um, I can't remember the exact um, d condition it is, that kind of disability, but I do know that it basically, similar to autism, it makes you take certain things literal it um, impairs your, uh, well, kind of impairs your ability to speak properly. And um, it's very similar to autism, but it's mainly focused on speaking. And mm -hmm. because I couldn't speak until age five, and obviously I was two years old, um, that's what the um, hospital thought I had at the time. Um, but around five years old, I was properly diagnosed with high functioning autism. And um, I was also diagnosed with asthma, um, 
and um, high social biological anxiety around the same time. So, um, yeah. So the anxiety was diagnosed back then when you were five. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, it was diagnosed once when I was five and then again when I was around 10. So I got diagnosed kind of two times. Um, and the type of anxiety I have is, um, well, it's pretty unfortunate. The reason I say that is because it's biological anxiety. So basically it's not anxiety that's like brought on by experiences or brought on by certain stressful stimuli or um, environments. It's, this is the kind of, um, this is the kind of anxiety where um, even if there's nothing going on, like I could be in a literal peaceful, I could be on a peaceful beach, you know, waves coming down so beautiful, but even then my anxiety can, you know, affect me because it's, um, it, my type of anxiety is not rational. It's very irrational, so to speak. It can come at, you know, random times and um, it can affect me when I least expect. So right now I could literally have an anxiety attack, not because of anything that's going on or any choice of mine. It's just because of how my biological clock works, so to speak. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's a fascinating condition and uh, we might unpack it a little bit more as we, as we go through. But the fact that it's kind of out of your control and it's uh, in an internal organism, so to speak, right. It, yeah, yep. it happens just as as the same as your as your stomach processes food and your and your eyes mm. open and shut. It's something that um, is it something that you can control? Is there things that you can do the anxiety to help keep it under control? So currently, I take medication for my anxiety. Um, I take Movox for the anxiety. That's the name of the medication I take for it. And um, so the I would say the medication is the number one thing that um, really keeps it under control because um, if I weren't to take that medication, then my anxiety would just be all over the place. Like it would just, I wouldn't be able to control it at all. So um, it really is out of my control, um, which is why even um, after I left high school in the end of, at the end of 2014, um, I try to get a job with mainstream um, companies and also with um, disability companies like Minda and Bedford. And even with the disability companies, because my anxiety was just that extreme that, um, because the thing is, and this is actually where the um, autistic part comes to play in that I'm very observant. So I'm a very observant person. And I literally, it's, literally I can observe everything that's going around me. So. Just as much detail that I'm getting from my, you know, frontal view, I can get from my peripheral view. So that part of like um, observational analysis um, comes from my autism. But um, the only problem was that was when I tried to get a job, even though I was very observant and I knew what was like going on, so to speak, because the anxiety was just making me get all out of sorts and making me you know be disorganized um, I just wasn't able to keep a job for very long so um, even when I tried to get the um, mainstream jobs I would go in there I would apply for it and then like a couple months later just they'll just go up to me and be like sorry mate but you're a good worker you've got a very good work ethic but um, unfortunately your standards don't meet our criteria 
So um, when I kept hearing that over and over again from both mainstream and disability companies, it was very disheartening at first. But then that's when I decided to um, do some volunteering. So the thing is with volunteering is that it's not as um, strict as employed employment <clears throat> because um, the thing is, is that... Um, well, they're not paying you, are they? So Well, <laughs> they're not paying me, but not only that, but um, they expect less from you. So basically, even if I were not to do something correctly or do something out of sorts, like let's say my anxiety um, got in the way or let's say my autism made me misunderstand a situation. And um, well, let's just say that um, one of the co-workers, um, it, just talking in general, in a mainstream um, company decided to say, oh, um, Bruno, you have to um, put that um, big, heavy stuff of supplies down the elevator. Now, I would believe them and do it, not knowing they were joking. Um, but then the boss would get like extremely mad because even if someone told me to do something that silly, he wouldn't understand why I would go and do it, especially mm. if I had high anxiety, which would make me want to do it even uh, quicker. So um, that's the thing with volunteering is that... Um, Volunteering doesn't expect that from you. So even if you, I were to make those kind of silly mistakes, they would still help me out on the process. I wouldn't get any kind of um, repercussions from it at all. So mm -hmm. that's why I decided to volunteer at um, a couple of places, uh, mostly involved in agriculture. Um, well, mostly involved is agriculture, conservation, um, and stuff like that. So, yeah. And what a how old are you now Bruno you said it earlier 25 is that right yep 25 years of age that's correct 25 yep. and when did you think that when did you start thinking about driving through all of this process when did you start to think yeah look I need to explore and and uh you know see if I can drive well the thing is I've wanting I've been wanting to drive since I was 16 years old mm -hmm. um it's it's always been um a passion of mine, I guess you could say, to be able to drive myself from A to B, because um, it just gives me that extra independence than if I weren't to have a car. Because the thing is, while I can just you know walk somewhere or take public trans, you know, public transport, being able to get into your own car and driving how many miles you want to a certain place, it really does give you that independence that you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have without it. So. Um, so it's, I've been wanting to do it since I was like a teenager, but, um, it was just because of my anxiety, it really, it really was just, um, well, it was just really hard for me to like, like I said, it was hard for me to keep the jobs. So keeping driving was also something that was very, um, it was just difficult for me, you know? Was it, and, was it a, um, like, do you think it was to do with the confidence uh, um, around the, like the anxiety and, and the performance on the road? Or do you think it was just, just had to spend more time practicing? Um, I would say it has to do completely just with the, well, it has to do with both my um, confidence and my um, anxiety. So for, I forgot to mention this, but when I, when my mom used to drive me around to places, when the traffic would be very like um, intense, I would have to literally like put my, hand over my ear and literally go like that so I wouldn't have to deal with um, the traffic around me so it was literally that bad that um, when I did actually first start to apply to, for my piece back in um, early 2019 
or sorry, my L, sorry, back in 20, in early 2019. Um, I started off in a disability um, parking lot with permission from the building owners, of course. And um, that just kind of got me, you know, used to like the sort of, um, it just kind of got me used to the dynamics of driving, even though I wasn't on the road. I didn't have to deal with like traffic lights or going in and out of people's way, changing it's also lanes. The, the car environment, like the car environment can be pretty complicated sometimes. So it's kind of helps you get used to that without having to go out into the road. Well, no, completely, completely agree, Ali. And, and the thing is, is that um, the thing is the, and this is where the autism comes into play again, in that um, the biggest issue I have with anything in life is the transitional period. So it's transitioning into something. So I'm really good at doing something in the middle. And well, I'm really good at doing something in the middle. But when it comes to doing something in the beginning and the end, I struggle with. Like I really, really struggle with. And sometimes it's hard, it's hard to put into words, but um, it's just... I think, really is really, I think you put it into really good words there. I think um, for me, what you just said um, hit the nail on the head for, I think, my experience with a lot of people that are autistic. It's that, um, sure. it's, it's, that, it's that transitioning that's an issue. Transitioning in various parts of your life probably is where things start to, you know. Um, so, I mean, that tells me that instantly we need to be thinking about how to support people in that community around the transitioning process and then everything else is really going to be easy right so yeah um, yeah really, really hope that some driving instructors listen to this episode and uh and we might promote it to that industry because that is that is mm -hmm. a key component of teaching somebody with autism to be able right. to drive is is setting up the environment and helping with that transition for something new and that, that's wonderful so is there any tips that you could provide driving instructors or um other 16 to however old uh, sure. people getting into the car for the first time with a driving instructor because i'm assuming that it would be uh anxiety provoking even without having oh, a diagnosed anxiety disorder um, getting into a new environment for anybody when you're 16, getting into a new car would be, you know, it's an anxious time. But for somebody with autism, have you got some tips that you could give somebody about that first transition into the car? Well, what I would say is that to make sure that they don't rush into it. So basically a lot of people with autism and anxiety because they just want to overcome that hurdle. You know, instead of wanting to just like take things step by step. And I know I was the same way too. They kind of just want to rush into it. If that makes sense. So they just kind of want to rush into maybe the main roads or the side roads. And they want to be like, you know what, even if I do have impairment with that, um, I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And the fact is that that is so difficult. I know that if I were to do that, that would be really detrimental to my health because it would, it would actually, you know, degress the situation. It wouldn't make me progress. It would make me degress because then if that, if I have like a trigger, a triggering event from that, then it will literally, you know, slow me down from um, during that transitional period again, mm -hmm. because the thing is, is that no matter if you like it or not, even if you rush straight into it, there's still the transitional period that you have to um, go through. 
So I would say that just go through the transitional period first. And then once you've, you know, been able to conquer that, then you can uh, go straight into the actual driving on the road and side roads and, and all of that. Um, so you're saying that time in a car park, time to be able to get used to how the car operates before having to deal with traffic or deal with roads and environments and things like that. Is, is that what you're saying, Bruno? That is completely what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm saying that um, you need to be somewhere where it's a completely chilled environment, a controlled environment, and an environment that's not unpredictable. Because mm-hmm. I know people with autism, whenever they're somewhere that's very unpredictable or in, or if they're in, in an environment that's very unpredictable it's hard for them to uh well it's hard for them to progress further because then they start um because I, I know for me i have a thing called obsessional compulsive thought disorder so it's kind of like um you know how some people they have obsessional compulsive behavior um well i have that um of the of the mind so basically every little thing that i see on the road i start to obsess over so if um someone's beeping even if it was five ten minutes later i'll keep thinking were they beeping at me was it something i did and then that will um make the rest of the ride go unsmoothly because then that's all i'll be thinking about and then my focus will just be on all oh, that person I heard someone beeping, even if I don't know if it was at me, I was still obsessed over that and think, oh, maybe I was somehow involved in that. And then for even if it was literally dirty, two hours later, I would just be thinking about that the whole time to the point that the, the, the drive just wouldn't go smooth. I would literally have to like park somewhere, find an escape route, wait for myself to calm down. And if I wasn't able to, and I still was obsessing over that, then I would have to um, have someone take me home or just call it quits. So um, does that happen? Does that, has that happened to you before? Does it happen often regularly now? Or is it just something that you were doing during transition period? Um, it's actually something that still happens to me. So um, even the thing is, is that um, even me having my peas right now, um, I still don't feel 100% confident to drive by myself. So I still have either a family member or a support worker with me while I'm driving. And um, usually um, I just have them guide me like um, it's mostly for guidance still. So um, even though like, because the thing is, it's not actually the skill set of the car. So I actually have all of the skill sets there. But it's that um, confidence, even after getting my peace, and especially with someone with anxiety and autism, it's that confidence that, am I going to make the right decision that even, it, can I trust myself that even if I'm driving by myself, that I won't cause a major accident and I won't do something that will um, cause me to, uh, you know, just. Yeah. Bruno, yeah. Do, you, do you think it's also a transition from what you've been saying? Because you've been having somebody in the car all this time to help you learn how to drive. Do you think you need a, there's a transition period to letting go of somebody in that seat next to you? Oh, completely. There definitely is. Because um, the thing is, is that 
independence has been my number one goal. So I don't want to be dependent on someone else always guiding me and being like, oh, Bruno, do this, Bruno, do that. Because the thing is, if I'm always like having someone hold my hand and guide me through everything in life, not just driving, then I'm never going to progress and grow up. I'm never going to become my own person. But um, if I'm able to like eventually, um, again, I'm not, I'm not sure how this process is going to go for me because I haven't you know, gone there yet. But um, I've gotten my P's. I have the skill set of driving a car. Now all that's left is for me to um, trust myself, gain the confidence that I need, and just, you know, especially with the obsessive compulsive thought disorder that I have, just calm my brain and be like, you know what? I am in control of this car. No one else is. Everyone else that's driving, they have to follow the exact same rules, the exact same road conditions, the exact same everything that I have to. It's not different than anyone else. And if someone else gets upset because I'm doing the right thing, then that's their problem to deal with. And mm. instead of me obsessing over that, you know, obsessing over someone getting upset with me, even when I've done the right thing, um, I need to still learn how to um, kind of just let it go and, and still continue on driving, especially if I need to get to work or if you need to get to somewhere important. So um, that is really, really important. Um, before, before we go on, I just want to um, just discuss my other conditions that I have. So um, I also have um, asthma as well. So um, with the asthma, sometimes that can, um, especially if I'm having an asthmatic attack, um, cause I have quite severe asthma. Sometimes I also need to, um, pull over as well because um the thing is was having an asthmatic attack and having ocd of the mind and having anxiety and having autism all wrapped up in one um when that's happening all at once it really really is difficult to just well just continue where you're going mm. um and i also have um a slight stigmatism as well so I have a slight stigmatism of the eye. It's very, very mild, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. When I got diagnosed with it by the doctor, um, the doctor even said it was so hard to detect. Um, but there are still some periods where I'm at a traffic light, right? And if I stare at the traffic light for too long, I can see the kind of see the image of the traffic light just for a couple of seconds go a bit blurry and all over the place. Mm -hmm. So it's nothing that impacts me dangerously or anything, but it's still something that I need to be aware of. Um, I also, um, I also have epilepsy and um, where that affects me is mostly nighttime driving. So um, that affects me, um, especially um, when it's really dark at night and um, there's like, let's, especially now that it's Christmas time, if I see a whole bunch of flashing Christmas lights it can definitely trigger um, an episode for me where I have to, uh... well, the thing is, these are all basic, very simple stuff, right? So um, with the asthmatic attack, I'll have an asthmatic, with the asthma, I'll have an asthmatic attack in the core, then I'll, um, it will affect me being able to concentrate properly. With the epilepsy, I'm gonna have, if I have a mini seizure in the core, then it will stop me from concentrating properly. So those are all areas that affect me while I need to drive to places, but. Um, you sound like you're very um, aware of it all though, that like, it sounds like your self-awareness is very high, which is, um, I would say a very important part of the, the driving I guess aspect. 
Oh, completely. And the fact is you do need to be aware. Look, some people, they may not even be aware that they have something wrong with them. Yeah. Like, especially if it's very, very slight, like I have it, sometimes they can just be like, oh, it was just a, a bad day or I was just not feeling the best. So sometimes people, they can have these problems and not even realize it. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and the thing is, is that self-awareness is really key when it comes to that. Everything that I've been saying has been very simple and like straightforward and to the point. But really, when you think about it, Sometimes the simplest and most straightforward things can, you know, be the most um, challenging when it comes to driving. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a couple of things that I just want to point out there with what you're you're saying uh, with your diagnosis. I've got astigmatism, and yeah, it can make things a little bit blurry and go in and out of focus. Uh, my glasses yep. make a massive difference there. But the one that I want to point out for our listeners is the um, epilepsy. Now, a lot of listeners will go, oh, epilepsy won't be able to drive, okay? Or a seizure won't be able to drive. But yours is controlled. Yeah, yours is controlled. You know when it happens, um, which is late at night. So therefore, the doctor's giving you the all clear in regards to that. And you can pick when you're going to drive. So daylight hours, you're allowed to drive through that period. And um, I just I just know that somebody will point out it, while listening to this, that epilepsy, how come he's on the road? Bruno, I'm assuming that you've been through medical clearances to be able to get that ticked off and you've met the medical guidelines for, for the epilepsy uh, when, you, when you first were going for your license way back. Would that be true? That is completely true. Yep. In fact, even before I um, got my L's, that was one of the first things that I was worried about out of everything else was how my um, epilepsy was going to affect my driving. Mm -hmm. Um but after the doctor assessed that um, the medication um, had my, you know, had my seizures heavily controlled and it was really only at nighttime that anything was going to get triggered. He just said that, look, um, in the logbook, just get the night hours ticked off. But once you get your P's and even your full license, he doesn't suggest that I drive at nighttime whatsoever. So even now, I'm just going to stick to daytime driving. And if I need to go somewhere during the night, then I'm just going to have a friend or a family member or a support worker um, help me get to places like I have been before I even got my L's or my P's. Mm. So sounds, um, sounds really wise. Sounds really wise. Can completely. I, can I take it back another notch? You were saying about um, the predictable environments and um, making sure that you don't progress too far and help with the transition. I want to, I want to touch base with what type of things you, what are, what are some of the, gold nuggets that you could provide listeners in regards to working sure. with a driving instructor i'm assuming that you've you've had a, a patient driving instructor if you've had to pull off to the side of the road and you've had to to deal with anxiety maybe an asthma attack but also dealing with the obsessive compulsive thought disorder I'm yep. assuming that you've had to, it's been a slower progress or you've had to do certain things during lessons to make it work. Can we talk about that a bit more? Oh, no, completely. So it has been a bit of a slower process because of that, because, um, and the thing is, there's nothing that um, I can fault my instructor on, to be honest. Everything that my, personally, the instructor that I had, everything that he's done has been like by the book he's understand autism quite well and he's understand my other conditions as well so every time um, I've needed a break 
or every time things have just gotten too much for me while I was driving, he would be like, okay, Bruno, let's find somewhere where we can pull over. He would find like a side, you know, side street or whatever. We'll pull into that side street or parking lot. And then he would sit there. He would um, get out the logbook. He would start like drawing down the situation. He would start like literally drawing down the diagrams, what we just, um, what the triggering event on the road just was. Um, he would he would draw everything down. He would um, explain what was happening. He would explain what I could have done in that situation. And then he would explain how I could go forward from there. So instead of just like finding an escape route and just, you know, just letting me calm down and just be like, okay, Bruno, we're just going to stop here. Once you've calmed down, we're just going to go back on the road and we won't address what made you triggered in the first place. He instead um, completely addressed it did a whole diagram, did a step-by-step explanation of what went in that situation, what exactly triggered me and how I could have handled that. So yeah. really no matter, and I'm not giving any specific examples because there were so many different, you know, road examples when I was with my instructor that it would, you know, take me ages to list them all. But just to have something like that while you're driving for someone with my condition really makes the difference because then it makes you reassess it it makes you think about it more logically and then next time you um get into that same um triggering situation you can look back on it and be like well my instructor um explained this to me in this way so i'll just implement it again and um just before we go on um, i also want to talk about um something else that has happened that has really um pushed me back in the last three years of me getting my peace and that thing that has pushed me back is the car crash. So um, I haven't talked about that yet, but um, in case anyone that's listening wants to know. Um, so basically, um, this was when, uh, this was late 2020. I don't remember the exact month. I think it may have been September, October. It was around that time. And um, I was just coming from, it was near Semaphore Road. So if anyone's that's if anyone that's familiar with um, South Australia and Semaphore, they'll know how Semaphore Road is like a long strip of um, well, just a long strip of the road basically. And um, so basically, it wasn't on Semaphore Road; it was just kind of off it. Um, and in the middle of the road where I was on, I can't remember the exact name of the road, but um, there was a medium strip. So basically, I had a support worker with me. Um, next to me and um, while I was driving it was a 60 road by the way and I was only going about 50 and um, there was a medium strip in the lane that was had even a give way sign so basically um, the cord I pulled up in the medium strip he was actually in my blind spot but because he was meant to give way um, I just assumed everything was all good I could keep going I didn't need to wait for anyone I didn't see any danger so um, I just kind of took the car along to go into, because there was like a parking lot up ahead and I was going to go there with my support worker and my support worker was just going to, um, well, he's just going to do some parallel parking with me and just give me some guidance along the way. You know, just to, to get up your hours, Bruno. Yeah. Is just to get up saying? my hours. Yeah, so yeah. not with it a was... driving instructor, but actually with, with somebody supporting you to get up hours. Yeah. That was correct. Yep. Yeah. That was correct. Yeah. So this was during when I still haven't completed my logbook hours and I needed just to get it up there. So um, obviously I couldn't do everything with the instructor. So um, 
in, in terms of hours. So um, I really was just um, trying to get the hours, um, you know, mm-hmm. not just kind of like just doing random stuff just to get the hours, you know, booked up. But, you know, I did want to get that out of the way. So and how did it impact you, Bruno? What what impact did the car accident have on your progression, on your learning? Yeah. Well, the thing is the core um, accident, um, it pushed me back so far. Like it really, really pushed. So um, I couldn't actually drive properly until about six months later because um, after the car accident happened, every time I would see someone come from a medium strip or a side road um, or someone coming from the other side of the road, I would always jump. I would always get really scared and always pull the car this way. So I would always like literally push the car all the way to the other side, trying to avoid something that wasn't even, even though they most likely were not even going to go into my lane, I probably wasn't going to have to avoid them. Um, I kept doing that. So both, so my assessor, right? Um, Both my assessor and the instructor said, look, Bruno, um, because you're doing that, um, we're going to give you a couple of, um, we're not going to go on the main roads, basically. So I was only allowed on the side roads for those like six months because they just did not trust me to, um, what I just did not trust that if someone was to come from the other road or from the, from a side road or from the intersection that I wasn't just going to suddenly turn into the other lane and cause an accident. So um, if you want me to go into more details about the car crash, I can. That's okay. Um, it's, we, more, it's more we, just, we to, might, yeah, we might leave it there. I'm just uh, wary of our time. We, the other Jordan. thing that I wanted to talk about was, did you have an occupational therapist involved in this journey of yours, Bruno? Um, yes, I did actually. Yeah. Um, and, and did they, were they just assessing at the start to help you or did they uh, assist you in any other way? Did they just uh, uh, help you get, I'm assuming you're on NDIS. Did they just help you get NDIS funding or were they involved in a different way? So um, they were involved both with NDIS and they were also involved with trying to get me back onto the road more confidently after the crash. So um, with the NDIS, it was mostly about um, the plan management Mm -hmm. and also the, um, because the thing is with NDILs, I'm um, with help from my mom, I'm self-managed, but even with the self-management, there's a lot of, um, well, the thing is the, the number one problem with NDIS that I find is that um, they always like get you new plan managers when you least expect. So the plan, every time your funding runs out, they always add new plan managers. And then when your next funding plan runs out, they get a new plan manager. And so sometimes it's very tricky to go from people to people all the time. Mm-hmm. But um, the OT was um, ma- mainly for, because the thing is my mom and um, my family are the ones that mostly um, do the NDIS planning for me. But I do know for me specifically, the OT was mostly about helping me get back onto the road more confidently. And in a way that if I were to go back on there, um, I'm not going to do that. Um, well, I'm just not going to freak out every time I see someone coming from the side road or anything. I'm able to just continue on with what I need to without um, anything major happening. So all of the stuff um, that you've done um, in terms of the lessons and working with the OTs and stuff, is that all being covered by NDIS? 
That that's correct. Um, that's okay. all been NDIS covered. Um, Even the lessons as well, like the lessons or the lessons that you had in the beginning. Well, it's been half covered. So half of it has been covered by my family, and half of it has been covered by NDIS. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, because I was just interested because um, you were saying that you needed to do probably by the sounds of things a few extra hours to get used to these situations. Um, and so, yeah, like, is that considered in the plan, you know? Um, not all of it was considered in the plan. Yeah. So some of some of the extra hours I actually had to do was my mom or my sister because it just was not covered. Yeah. So a lot of some of it was done by support workers. Um, it's, and but most of it was done by my family and um, the instructor yeah. that I had. We so, get this question all the time. So let's reflect on this really quickly and we'll probably bring it up in our top three takeaways. Um, right. NDIS want people to invest in lessons like any other typical 16 year old would. Okay. Of course. So they, you, they want you to be able to go and engage in a driving instructor at some point through your journey. Usually they like yep. to see it first that you've paid for some lessons and then that's highlighted that you're struggling. And then NDIS right. will help you with extra specialized driving instructor lessons beyond the normal. Now, what is normal? Some person right. might take two or three hours to learn how to drive. If they've been driving on a farm all their life, they live out in the country. And then somebody, uh, somebody else, same age, living in the city, they might take right. 20, 30 hours without any diagnosis of a disability. Mm. Uh, they might even take longer. It's, uh, it's very interesting to try and figure out what, what normal is and what the industry average is for a, for a typical person to learn how to drive uh, because it varies varies so much and and we see this in the disability sector as well yeah it, it really does it really does um the thing is with ndis not one person is going to have the same experience mm -hmm. that's what i've known just i'm um, talking to other people that have disabilities from any age whether they're elderly uh, middle-aged teenage or whatever um no one's going to have the same experience mm -hmm. um and i think the, the reason for that is um I know the reason for me is um, one of the main, probably one of the main problems with NDIS is the changing of plan managers. So um, that happens every time a fund runs out for me. Um, and I also know that it's very difficult to get in touch with NDIS and for NDIS to get in touch for you. So to keep things consistent as well can be a bit of a challenge at times. Mm -hmm. So just that kind of stuff can, um, like I said, sometimes it's not even the NDIS. Sometimes it's not even what the NDIS provides that's the problem. It's how they go about it. And okay. yeah, yeah well, I'm just wary of our time, Bruno. That's it's really oh, good yeah. feedback for hopefully the people listening in. Um, that change of plan managers, especially for somebody with uh, ASD and uh, autism, but uh, also with an anxiety disorder, <laughs> I can assume that. So that is that is quite debilitating for you to to go through it all again. Um, oh, completely. And, yeah. and try and figure it out with a new plan manager each year. Oh, yeah. and I mean, it, it it really is. It really is. To be honest, I I couldn't really add more to that than what you just said. So, yeah. Um, yeah. one thing before I go, um, I think this may be just a good um, thing for other people that also have this problem as well. 
um, and they're driving just so they know they're not alone in this as well. Go so um, I wear something called odotic footwear. So um, this is, um, I don't know if you can see it, but um, there we go. Um, yeah, yeah. So basically this is, um, this is my um, shoes I have to wear regularly because the muscle and bone alignment in my feet or not, um, well, they're just not aligned properly. Mm-hmm. So um, because they're not aligned properly, uh, my feet, and also I have flat feet as well. So that definitely doesn't help, but they naturally go out as penguin feet. Um, and the problem with that in regards to driving is that a lot of orthotic footwear, because they have a lot of inches added underneath, like the padding added underneath is very thick. It, um, when I was first learning to drive, I actually couldn't feel the pedal at all. Mm. So I honestly couldn't feel the pedal. And that, made, that actually made me very scared because I didn't know how fast I was going. And I didn't know um, how, I didn't know when I put my um, foot on the like stop brake, if it was actually stopping like fast enough or not. So I was literally playing a guessing game with my orthotic footwear. So um, that's probably one thing other people that have like the same issue when it comes to feet as I do, that if they're wearing orthotic footwear, um, that could be something to take into account as well, that a lot of orthotic footing, they have like very, very like thick um, padding. It takes away the sensations, basically. It yeah. removes the sensations. So. Is there a tip that you can give Pretty people, much. Bruno, to, to deal with that, to work around that? What I would say is that if you're able to, um, probably try to get a shoe that's um, modified for your feet that is um, that's just like a normal shoe but it's a normal shoe that's kind of modified in a way that it still helps protect your feet. Because uh, obviously I'm not a, like a foot doctor or anything like that. So I'm not able to like give, you know, concrete answers. But what I would say um, is pretty much do something similar that I did. I went to my foot doctor, got him to um, get me more of a normal sporty type shoe. Um, he organ, he, um, you know, he, uh, modified that for me and he basically um added these straps as well i don't know if you can see the straps mm-hmm. but he added yep. the straps onto the normal shoes and then i was able to feel the sensation of my feet when they touched the pedals so awesome yeah. great well done bruno we've just outlined that it's a long process uh to get your l's but we can't let you go without asking this final question that we ask everybody okay. um being able to drive is more than getting from A to B, other than getting your P's, what's something that you've done in your car that's a little bit unique um, and more than just getting from place A to place B? Well, of course, I haven't had my, and I still don't have my own core yet. I'm still relying on my mom's core until um, I save up enough to get my own. Um, so I don't have enough experience yet to like answer it fully. However, um, the stuff I used to do in my parents' core were um, like making videos. So sometimes I would make like funny videos and sometimes I would like, um, I would just kind of like go in there and pretend like um, I was like a, a, a person in a James Bond movie and just make those <laughs> kind of like funny little videos, like reenact act, you know, fighting scenes. Um, oh, yeah. And another thing I would do is um, sometimes I would like open the trunk 
put a whole stuff in it to see how much would actually fit until it was <laughs> over full. <laughs> so <laughs> I did, I did a lot of interesting stuff. Um, and then also sometimes I would just, you know, play pranks on my friends. So sometimes I would like hide in the back seat and, um, They'll be like, where's Bruno? Where's, you know, Bruno needs to come with us. This is important. Then I'll just kind of like pop up from the back seat. <laughs> I mean, people would get a bit more annoyed by that. But uh, yeah, it was. Sounds um, like you were destined to be a driver. Sounds like yes, you were just like yes. a car, you know? So, so yeah, yeah Bruno. Completely. It's been awesome chatting with you. Really, thank you for coming on. If people wanted to get in contact with you, Bruno, to ask uh, maybe some more tips from you, they wanted to ask you, a unique question that we haven't covered in this podcast. Is there a way that they could do that? If you got an email address or something like that, that you could share that people could get in contact with you? Sure thing. So people can contact me at Bruno Palamara 96 at gmail.com or lowercase. Yeah. So if anyone um, wants to contact me, um, they can contact me through there so yeah oh good on you we'll 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 actually put that in the show notes everybody so make sure you go and check us out on our facebook page that's where you'll find all the show notes that we do for any podcast that we do Uh, but you'll find uh, bruno's uh, email address there in the show notes so make sure that you go over to facebook press uh, search for drive able podcast it'll take you there while you're there, make sure you press that like button and uh, become a follower, and then you can keep up with any future episodes. Bruno, thank you very much for coming on. Listeners, hang around. No We're going to do our top three takeaways. Uh, after this, Ali and I break down our top three takeaways from, from this interview with Bruno. But again, Bruno, thanks very much. And uh, yeah, stay safe on the road. Thank Cheers, you. guys. Have a good one. All right. You good? You're recording as well? Yep. Yep. All right, everybody. Welcome back. A massive shout out to Bruno for joining us in this section here. This is uh, our top three takeaways from the interview that we've just done. Um, And the first one that we're going to highlight is the working with somebody with ASD and anxiety. And what Bruno really highlighted there was the transitioning allowing him to be able to transition through different periods. So when he was mentioning first getting into the car, going out on the road straight away may have been detrimental to his learning, you know, being able to process traffic in those early stages when he wasn't in control of the car may have been detrimental to his, to his learning and his progress and allowing him time to transition Uh, is something that comes up quite often with our clients with ASD uh, and autism, but especially for someone with uh, anxiety as well. Yeah, I thought, I thought that was um, for me, actually, that was probably the biggest lesson in this, um, in this uh, podcast, because I do have, um, uh, to be honest, even on a personal level, I've got friends and family that suffer from autism and um, various people. And I don't think I ever fully understood it until that transitioning comment today. Um, And that seems to be what I'm observing with the people that I know as well is the difficulty comes in that transitioning through the activities. Um, And once they're in those activities and they're confident, they're they're doing it better than anybody else. But it's that understanding that transitioning and then understanding that means that we can then support that process, you know, and then, and then um, just focus the support through that, through that process and then make sure that, you know, um, the independence is achieved. So it's, um, yeah, I thought that was really good. It, 
allowing the brain to process the information at their speed. He's got the, uh, Bruno's got the obsessive compulsive thought disorder. He's got the anxiety where he's highlighted that he's super observant of everything that's going on around him. He needs time to process all of that and figure out where to slot that in and which bits are important and which bits aren't important. Um, I'm saying this based on experience. My son's got autism and um, for people that don't know that, um, you know, I assist clients with autism uh, every day with their driving goals as well. And it does, it takes more time to be able to figure out what things are important because when they're out on the road, everything is vitally important and it takes time to figure out that that parked car that's not moving is not as important as the red stop sign coming up. And that car that's parked a couple of meters down the road, they're turning wheels as they're about to pull out of a car park is vitally important to be aware of, but understand that they've got rules and processes that they have to follow as well. And they're not going to automatically pull out in front of you, even though they've turned their wheel and put their indicator on. So it takes a lot of time for somebody with autism to figure out and process and and figure out a hierarchy of importance um, for everything that's out on the road. And it's a highly complex environment, the road. Uh, but once they've done it, they're, they're one of some of the best drivers going around, absolutely, because they they understand it and they can process it and they process it to a really high level. And, and like Bruno, uh, that obsessive compulsive thought process is common. And they're constantly analyzing every environment. And it's not in their subconscious. It's more in their conscious. And they're making decisions not based reactively, but more proactively. And uh, they're thinking about what's going to happen next rather than reacting to something that could potentially be a late reaction to an, uh, an accident in environment. Yeah, which what you're saying also significantly highlights what we've mentioned multiple times before and what was mentioned today is um, is that the transitioning is difficult and you need that team around you that understands that, you know, so that understands those various um, quirks around, around what you're dealing with so then they can, um, you know, support that even, um, which I think can kind of lead into our second learning, which is around the plan managers and the NDIS and having uh, understand, and them understanding um, that, hey, like, like Bruno mentioned, every time you get a new plan manager, um, that's, a, that's a massive deal for someone with that disability. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's to, to not really accommodate that through the NDIS is, um, I guess, if you're listening and you're with the NDIS, I'd, I'd be challenging uh, NDIS on that because, NDIS is all about choice and control and independence. And, and I guess um, this is understanding and, and community acceptance and so on. And this is understanding, well, this is what you would need as your disability. Um, maybe other things you don't need that other people would, but in this case, this is actually probably one of the most important aspects of what you need. Um, yeah. And so, so we need to put a bit of extra um, effort into that for people of this cohort, you know, so it's... Um, Maybe there could be a priority rating that, uh, you know, the stable workforce uh, or the same plan managers for people with with ASD and anxiety uh, yeah. as, a, as a higher priority, if yeah. that's at all possible. We don't work within the NDIS. Yeah. Um, don't know if it is, but 
if there is any way that could be more stable for for clients with ASD and and anxiety, that would be. And I would often what happens is with these conversations with the government and stuff, it it can come around um, funding and the affordability of that. But I would challenge to say that if someone like Bruno had the same plan manager, it would probably cost the government less um, because he wouldn't have to start the whole process from scratch with someone else and, you know, rediscover and re-get comfortable and so on. So the amount of time they have to spend would be less, but also he might end up with a whole new plan with whole new products and whole new things, you know, because he's gone through a whole different conversation, you know, and that's a, that's a dangerous position to be in, you know, and for NDIS and then him. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's bad enough for everybody to have to explain their story over and over and over again. Uh, but for someone with autism, that's, that's more significant. Yeah. Uh, and it's the same for driving instructors as well. Um, you know, that, that ability to have a driving instructor that understands autism and that it's going to take longer um, and that they've got to find ways to, to pull over to the side of the road and unpack it, take the time to draw diagrams or find a way that, that is meaningful for the client. Not everybody will relate to diagrams. Some people need it uh, written down. Some people need to go through the scenario again. They need the driving instructor to get out, get into the driving uh, seat and actually demonstrate it again. All of this takes time and um, they need to have a patient driving instructor, but also throwing it back to the NDIS. NDIS need to understand that for somebody with ASD especially, that they're going to be great drivers once they can figure it out, but it's going to take time. And that really does need to be funded uh, because it is a much more expensive process for somebody with ASD to be able to, to get their license. And uh, that's, that's one of the biggest takeaways from this uh, is proactively advocating that for clients with ASD, more often than not, it's going to take longer, um, especially with uh, something that's a little bit more moderate to severe, it's going to take longer. It really is, um, and especially when you throw in other conditions like anxiety and and uh, orthotics and uh, uh, astigmatism and asthma and and so forth, uh, it's it's really going to take longer to do. Yeah, but that kind of ties into our third goal, Ellie, and that's, yes, that's right. not to give up. Exactly, not to give up on your goal. Yeah, that is. Um, I mean, one of the things that he Bruno mentioned, which highlighted to me, was. Um, he said a couple of times how his number one goal has always been independence. And that is a common theme amongst our driving, um, I guess, interviewees um, is that that independence. Um, but he's, you know, it's not an easy journey, as we've just mentioned through this unpacking. It's a slower process, particularly for someone, um, you know, with ASD and autism and so on. You've got to do extra lessons, extra breakdowns, extra this and that. Um, you know, as we mentioned, it's four or five year process for Bruno. Um, but he hasn't given up and he's there in the end. So, um, so you know, it, it reminds me of stories that we've heard about the high-level controls, about people spending three, four years, you know, pushing through to get that stuff as well. So it's it, it, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Um, just got to get there and keep pushing and keep having that goal. And, and the fact that he had that goal of independence, I think, is what really has been driving him. And didn't give up on it. Yeah, and no. didn't give up on it when he was having, if we had the accident and had to work through his uh, reaction to that accident. But then also 
working through so many lessons and so much extra time in the car. And um, yeah, congratulations to him for sticking with it. And uh, a new transition period now about not relying on the on the driver next to him and becoming fully independent. But uh, yeah, massive goal. Six years from L's to P's. Um, congratulations to him. And, and it shows that we shouldn't give up on our goals. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess to wrap that up, as we say in every episode, and this is where it would have all started, is um, if you have, if he's, he said he always wanted to drive, you know, so any queries about what you can do and what will work for you, get in contact with your local OT or mobility dealer and set yourself up with a trial. Trials really put you in the driver's seat. So we'll see you in the next episode. Yeah, thanks, every, thanks very much, everybody, and see you in the next episode. for listening to the Drive Able podcast with Brad Williams and Aliak Barrier. If you like what you've heard, make sure you like, rate and subscribe. It really does make a massive difference. If you or anyone you know would like to share a story about driving with a disability or you would like to get in contact, find the show notes or find the resources mentioned in this episode, you can find us on Facebook. Just search at Drive Able Podcast for more information.